My name is Richard, one of the pastors here, and uh, you know, today we're going to be talking about what it costs us to follow after Jesus. And so my first point to those that are here is that, yeah, if you want to follow Jesus, show up on church on time on Daylight Savings. Um, that's a great way to follow after Jesus. Um, now, uh, yeah, it's just, I'm excited to stand here before you, excited to hear from God's word, but I recognize our deep need to hear from God and not me. And so would you join me as we pray and then um, let us head directly into the text. Father, I don't even have many words to say, but but we need you, God. We need you. We need you. We need you. We can't say that enough, God. We need your help, Father. Left to our own doing, Father, we... um, Our path leads directly to destruction. We'll make a mess of our lives, God. You know exactly where each and every person in this room stands when it comes to their relationship with you. You know exactly what you're what they're going to um, going through. And Father, we trust that today you've prepared a word just for them. I pray that they would find confidence in the reality of what it means to follow your son, Jesus Christ, that they would be encouraged. But, Father, I ask that you would make us uncomfortable today. Father, much of our spiritual dryness probably is or definitely is there primarily because we are too comfortable with you, God. I pray that you would awaken and stir up within us a greater zeal and a greater fervor to follow you and that we would see you as somebody worth giving everything for. God, only you can do this, Lord. So I ask that your spirit through your word would enter and would work through the hearts of your people in such a way to where we would respond in obedience, God. Father, you can do this and we ask this of you, trusting that you want this for us. And so we ask all these things in your son Jesus' name. Amen. I want to start our time presenting to you a question that I think we all need to have an answer for. But this question is, are you really following Jesus? Are you really following Jesus? In this question are a couple implications. The first one being that um, there is both a right and wrong way to follow Jesus. Let me say that again. There is both a right and a wrong way to follow Jesus. I'm grateful that God doesn't leave us in um, in darkness in the sense that he hopes to make it clear and plain to all of us exactly what it means to follow after his son. This is not a mystery, something he's hiding for a select group of people. No, God wants to make it clear that to follow Jesus is important because he knows that following after his son leads directly back to himself. God is after people. God is after reconciling people. And therefore, he wants to present to all of us the exact way in which we can have relationship with him. And that way is to follow Jesus, the son of God. The second thing, though, that can be found in that statement or implied is the reality that there is a way or there is a category of people who believe that they're following Jesus. But in all actuality, in all actuality, they're following after something or someone else. And then they're just calling that Jesus. The question remains for us, for you and I, are you really following Jesus? To summarize all that we're going to be discussing today, I think it could be captured in this one sentence. To follow Jesus 
or following Jesus is first an ongoing commitment. It is ongoing. The second thing is not only is it ongoing, but it will cost you a lot. And not only will it cost you a lot, but the reward of following Jesus outweighs the risk that are involved in following him. The text today, though familiar to some, this isn't a text that a lot of preachers go to when they want to um, increase the numbers of their congregation. This isn't a text that if you're thinking about how can I attract the masses, you don't necessarily go to Luke 9.23. In fact, Jesus preaches this text not with the goal of attracting many to himself, but actually with the purpose of whittling down the crowds to just a faithful few. A wise person once said, you can do more with less. And so Jesus understands that and he's not concerned about how many, he's just concerned about a few. Luke 9:23 it lands right in the place of a series of events that have taken place where Jesus is interacting with two groups of people the crowds and his disciples to set a little context for what's going on before we get into that scripture Jesus has been going throughout Jerusalem and various cities on his way he's attracted for himself um, one group of people the crowds He's gone out healing people. He's been preaching the word. He's been casting out demons. And so naturally, he's the new teacher on the scene. And so many people start drawing close to him. The thing about crowds is that they're fickle. The crowds were the ones that would come to hear a good word. But in Jesus's heart, but in the point in which Jesus made hard claims, they were the ones to head the other way. However, there's another group of people to which they haven't been attracted or drawn to Jesus on the, on the basis of what he can do. But no, these group, this group of people has been called by Jesus to follow him. These are the disciples. Jesus, over and over as he's selecting people for his own, he enters into their workspace. The first person that he calls is Simon Peter. In Luke chapter 5, we see that Simon is out on the sea and he's fishing. And while he's fishing, Jesus asks, can I get into your boat? Jesus gets in his boat and he continues to declare all of these great truths about who he is to which he tells Peter, go out a little bit further. As Peter goes out a little bit further, he says, cast your net on the side of the boat. Peter casts his net and pulls up a bigger, a bigger shipment of fish than he's ever seen in his life. And he responds after encountering and experiencing Jesus with leaving it all. He responds to Jesus with, and it says he left everything and followed after him. This is not specific to just Peter or Levi or John, but this is the way that all of us come into relationship with Christ, with an invitation to follow me, to which we respond in obedience of faith to say, God, you're worth leaving everything behind. This is the mark of what it means to follow Jesus. And so Luke continues on bringing us to a particular incident where he says to his disciples, who do the crowd say that I am? I think that's important for us to understand and ask ourselves the question, um, who does who is it that people say Jesus is? The disciples respond with, well, some say that he's Elijah. Others say he's John the Baptist. Some uh, 
uh, some Jeremiah. They give off these names after names of who the crowd say is. But he turns that on his head and he says, but who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? To which Peter responds with, Lord, you are Messiah, the son of the living God. Peter gets the answer correct, but the story doesn't stop just there. Matthew accounts Peter saying, as Jesus unfolds, okay, you believe me to be the Messiah. Let me tell you more about who I am. And he begins to unfold for them his plan or God's will, God the Father's will for his life. And he says, I've got to go to Jerusalem. I've got to go to Jerusalem. And while I'm there, I'm going to be rejected. While I'm there, I'm going to have to suffer. While I'm there, I'm going to be killed. But on the third day, I'm going to rise again. Peter, Peter responds to Jesus by saying, God forbid that would ever happen to you, Jesus. No, 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 no. That's not going to happen to you, Jesus. So he pulls Jesus aside and he rebukes him. This is the point in the text where we have to laugh because Peter is just that guy. Peter is that kid in the classroom who it reminds me of being in school and, you know, your teacher's giving out assignments and they're giving out instruction. You have that one kid in the class that decides that today's going to be the day that I talk back to the teacher. And as he says something smart, everybody in the class goes, ooh, you you have to imagine the disciples being like that in that moment where Peter decides to put conditions on what can or will not happen to Jesus, the one he just professed to be Messiah. Peter, the one who declares Jesus as God himself, wants to define for Jesus who Jesus can be for him. Jesus didn't fit so nice and neat in Peter's box. He didn't conform to the image that Peter wanted for him. Peter wanted a savior who, yeah, lived a comfortable life. Peter wanted a savior who wouldn't suffer or experience loss or even death. And you have to ask the question, why? Why didn't Peter want that for Jesus? I think the, the answer is simple. Peter didn't want that for Jesus because he didn't want that for himself. Peter understood that if I'm going to follow this man named Jesus, if I'm going to declare him as Savior and Lord of my life, then that means that wherever he goes, I have to follow. I spent some time on this portion of text just to set it up, just because if we don't understand this, If we don't see in context why Jesus takes the time to explain what it really means to follow him, we're not going to want to pay the cost. Peter had made a fool of himself. To which Jesus pulls everybody in, not just his disciples, but but the crowds. And he says, I'm going to make it completely Plain and simple for everyone so that there's no doubt in the room. This is what it means to follow after me, to which the text reads in verse 23. Then he said to them all, if anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. The first thing that we can see in the text, or the first thing that you should ask of yourself is, 
the way that we determine whether or not we are really walking with Jesus is first examining our lives to see if we're continuing to walk with Jesus. If you are basing your eternal security on the simple fact that you said a prayer way back then, but yet your life has remained the same, God is an afterthought in your life, and yet you want to think that you somehow, because of that prayer alone, have escaped the wrath of God that is coming over your life, you are a fool. God is not wanting you to base eternal security simply on doing or checking off a list. No, God wants you to base the eternal security on what he will do in your life and the ongoing commitment of what it means to follow Jesus. The way we enter into relationship with Christ is that it starts with an invitation. Think about those who are Christians in this room. Somebody, whether it be your mother, your father, your auntie, your uncle, your brother, your sister, a friend, or a complete stranger. Somebody took the time to share with you and to walk through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And in that moment of them extending God's invitation to you, the response, or it demanded a response. For those who have placed their trust in Christ, that response led to a profession of faith. In a moment, you decided, I want to trust Jesus as Lord and personal Savior, and I want to give my life to him. As a response or as an act of response, the security doesn't come simply in that moment alone. The security comes in the ongoing pursuit and commitment to continue to walk out the faith that you profess to have for yourself. It's not enough for me to tell you these things. Let us see how these things unfold in the text. The first thing he says is, if anyone wants to follow after me, two things we need to notice is that the invitation is open to all. He says, if anyone wants to follow after me, that means that whether you're white, black, Latino, Asian, rich, poor, educated or uneducated, the invitation to follow me is extended to all. This is good news, especially to those who profess to know Jesus Christ, because we were one of those people that God extended an invitation. And now we possess our faith in Jesus Christ. But the second thing is the invitation leads to an ongoing commitment And that manifests itself in the following after me. Jesus isn't simply believing, isn't simply telling us that we need to prescribe to some set of rules or set of beliefs. Jesus wants us to know that, no, what it means to follow me is to follow after me. It means to set in my, to make it my aim to move towards a a desired Person, This is what it means to follow after Jesus. In order to give a word picture of sort, a word picture of sorts, think of following after Christ as going to a beach and going, getting and nearing the coast to which you look down in the wet sand and you see a bunch of footprints and you see these footprints go one by one by one off into the distance. You could admire those footprints and say, oh, that's dope. Somebody was here before me. You could do that. Or you could say, I want to see where these footsteps lead to. Following after Jesus means we recognize that Christ has set a path before us and that to follow him, the call is that we would follow those footsteps to the end. This is what it means to follow after Jesus. Jesus gives an 
invitation to anyone considering to follow him, but he's not going to let us to define what the commitment is going to look like. He goes on to say, let him deny himself and take up his cross. The second point is that following Christ will cost you a lot. Following Christ will cost you a lot. In 1519, a Spanish explorer by the name of Hernando Cortez landed on the um, coast of Veracruz, Mexico. While he was on the coast, he he was intent on conquering the land. And so in order to ensure that um, that his soldiers did not return or flee, what he decided to do was to burn the 11 ships that he came to the coast with. Cortez knew that in order that the only way I can ensure a commitment from my people was that I alleviated any opportunity that they would have to flee. And so the only direction that his soldiers could head was inwards into Mexico. It was at that point that we all can step or that we all can look to that and we can realize that Cortez understood the price of true commitment, that it was going to cost us something, that it was going to cost him something, and therefore he decided it was willing to pay that cost. How can you be fully committed to Jesus without really ever counting or knowing the cost? How can you be committed to Jesus without ever really fully knowing or counting the cost? Jesus hopes to make it clear. And so he says, let him deny himself and take up a cross. Jesus is not holding any punches here. Jesus isn't afraid of stepping on people's toes. He's not afraid of the number of folks that could respond to him in anger or who could respond to him by even threatening his life. What Jesus is after and make is making it crystal clear that for those who decide to follow me, you know what you're getting involved in. Jesus is saying, firstly, let him deny himself. Let him deny himself. That word deny is an imperative. It's an imperative meaning that we need to do something, not tomorrow, but right now. It's a command to say that this day, in this moment, you need to be active. You need to do something. Think of it like a blazing fire underneath your chair. No one is going to continue sitting in the chair knowing that fire is coming up around them. No, you're going to run for safety. You're going to run towards something. And so him saying... Let that we must deny ourselves is him wanting to set a blaze to ultimately lead us into action. But what does he mean by deny himself? Why would he call people to deny themselves? The first thing that we need to see in this text is that God is calling us to step off our thrones. God is calling us to get off our thrones because he is a better master and he is not one 
who likes to co-captain with anybody. Jesus says, I will not be partners with you. I will not be your co-equal. When I enter into your life, if you're going to follow me, I'm going to require you to surrender everything, not just a few things. He's not going to let us say, God, I want to have you and this. You in this job, you in this car, you in this fame. No, he's going to say, no, I want all of you. And I'm going to provide for you a better way and a better master. Jesus is saying to them, I don't want to just be your savior. I want you to respond to me as Lord. I think for many of us, we've been in church so long that when we hear These verses, we've been around Jesus so much that when we hear um, some of the harder things that Jesus says to his people, we're kind of apathetic towards it. We're unmoved by it. Deny myself. Yeah, I can do that on Monday and or I can do that on Sundays. I can do that on Wednesday night Bible study. I can do that when I'm hanging with my Christian friends. But you want me to deny myself all the time? No, that's too much. No, that's too much, Jesus. You're asking too much from me. But God has to tell us to deny all of ourselves because there will always be something in us that wants to creep up for control. We are prone to always want to tell God or dictate terms with what God is or isn't allowed to do. You may not say it out loud, but all of us have put caution tape around certain areas of our life that we say, this is a restricted zone, Jesus. I've got this. I don't need your help. Jesus is saying, no, 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 no. You're not going to do that if you're going to say that you're a follower of me. You're not going to say that there are things in your life that are off limits. No, 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 no. When I, when you decide that you want to follow after me, then that means a commitment to say, Lord, I surrender everything. Lord, I surrender everything. But not only that, notice how there is no question here. It would sound that on first glance that when he says, if anyone wants to follow after me, that he would conclude that statement with a question mark. But he doesn't do that at all. This is not a question for us that we should Uh, hesitate or even meditate on as if there is another option. No, this is a statement to those who are wanting to know what it means to follow Jesus. He doesn't need our input. He's not asking for our input. And he definitely doesn't want us to hesitate even for a moment to respond. Jesus is saying, if anyone wants to follow after me, he must first deny himself. Do you treat Jesus like this? Do you treat Jesus as almost that little doll on the shelf that early on you were intrigued to play with? Early on it captured your attention. Early on it impressed you, but now you've just gotten tired of it. And it doesn't have to be a dog, a doll. It could be an action figure. It could be something that you initially loved, but now it sits on the shelf to which you like looking at it, you like telling people you have it, but, in this, but at the end of the day, you really don't want him to speak or have any involvement in your life. Do you treat Jesus like this? This is provocative. This is a provocative and controversial statement that Jesus is making. 
And he says it both to crowds and disciples. He says it to both crowds and disciples. There are two ways we can view a command like this. The first way is we can view God demanding that we give up ourselves to him as him trying to form this hostile takeover of our lives. God enters in and he wants complete control, which means that I'm going to what he asked me to give up is going to be painful and it's going to be filled with regret. God, you want all of me? Dag. That means I got to give up all my fun. That means that I got to give up all of the things that I enjoy. Dag, in our posture of our heart, views a loving and gracious God as a dictator. That's one way of viewing it. The second way of viewing what Jesus is asking of his followers is to think of it as Jesus rescuing us from ourselves. Of Jesus being so gracious and loving towards us that he knows that what's inside of you, what's your aims, what's your ambitions, everything about you, ultimately all those things are going to lead you down a path of utter destruction. And so my grace to you is going to be that I intervene and I make clear what it is I want to do in your life in such a way to where now you don't view what I'm trying to do with bitterness or resentment. But it causes you to actually worship me for who I really am. It causes me to be appreciative of a God who would say that you as that you in and of yourself are a terrible master. And I want to step in and I want to assume control so that ultimately I can lead you to the best life you could have. Maybe not in this life, but definitely in the life to come. This is what Jesus is saying. So we can look at it and I want to encourage us to look at it in that way. God assuming control by us surrendering all. Who better is it? To, who better is there to trust in than a God or the Son of God who lived the perfect life that we know we could not live in our on our best day? Denying self or self denial, what it does for us is it a corrects a faulty perspective that we have that would believe that. um, that God and others exist to serve me. That's the faulty perspective, that God and others exist to serve me. Self-denial flips that around and it brings God to the center of our lives and God begins to rearrange our thinking and reorient, reorient our way of life so much to where now God becomes the center Others and God are now the things that we seek to serve and we are way in the back having no consideration at all for our own needs and our own outcomes. We can trust God with that. That is what Jesus is after right here. But practically, what does this look like? I think we need to look at how Jesus did this in order for us to even get a picture of what it looks like for us to deny ourselves. And so we turn to Philippians 2. 5 through 8, a familiar text. If you have your Bible, turn with me. It should be on the screen. Paul tells us this as we think of how we are to live our lives. He says this, Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who existing in the form of God did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. 
Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, and when he had come as a man, he humbled himself before becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Jesus put aside his heavenly comfort and came down to us to endure suffering on our behalf. Jesus, the only one worthy of actually being served and worshiped, decides to take the form of a servant and became one for all of us. Jesus, the giver of all life, decides that he is going to empty his life in order so that you and I can be recipients of true life. Jesus lays aside every care and concern and need for the goal of other people being recipients of that kindness. He denied himself of every comfort there was for the sole purpose of honoring and glorifying his father. Have this mind in you, church. On your job, deny yourself in a way to where when you show up to work on time, when you show up to work on a day-to-day basis, Don't just think of that as an opportunity simply to make a check. Invest in getting to know your coworkers. Look for opportunities that you cannot just sit back and only do enough based off of what they pay you, but look for other opportunities to go above and beyond so that as those people that you're seeking to reach and hoping and desiring and praying to know the gospel, that those people will be able to look at your good works and say, there's something different about you. In your marriages, let me speak specifically to the men. In our culture, oftentimes we as men, we think that just because we go out the house and make the money, that when we come back home, what that means is that home becomes a place of us being served rather than us serving our families. Oh, it's quiet in here today. So instead of you getting home after your long day and then going straight up to the bedroom and getting on your phone and checking out, how about you do this? Stop in the car and pray for a moment. Think to yourself, I know that my day has been long, but God has called me to deny myself. And so ask God for help to say, how can I, as I enter into this home, how can I look for ways to engage my kids? As I enter into this home, how can I look for ways, even if it's after the kids have been put to sleep, how can I look for ways in which I can sit down my wife and check on her soul? How can I, instead of complaining about how dirty this house has been, how can I say, let me put on these gloves and let me get to work? Deny yourself. I could go on and on. And sisters, I'm not leaving you out. However, I want to talk to the men right now. Jesus doesn't just stop here, though. He doesn't just stop with, oh, denying yourself. Change the way that you think about everything. Allow me to surrender uh, surrender yourself fully to the will of God for your life. No, he continues on and he says, take up your cross and follow me. To take up one's cross literally means to see an object and to reach down and to bear it up and then to make path towards something. Take up your cross. It's, again, an imperative command to us to don't hesitate in doing this, but to make it an everyday application. 
take up your cross. The cross was not something that was meant for us to wear. No, it was something meant for us to bear. We are called to bear our cross. And so common for our day is that when we talk about the cross of Jesus Christ, we always refer to it as past tense, an event that happened way back then. So much so that the cross in our culture, yeah, it's something that we like to put around our necks on our chains to enhance our beauty. It's something that artists like to paint, 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 um, paint of and place in museums so that he can enhance his approval or acceptance or careers. No, it's something that we can see on top of, of cathedrals identifying to the world that this is a place of worship. The cross, though, isn't meant to be those things. The cross is an executionary tool to for Jesus to tell us to take up his cross in a sense to bring us into the moment. What he's saying to you and to I is he's saying, pick up your electric chair, your gas chamber and your lethal injection and carry it as you go. It points to our death. It points to us being reduced to nothing. It points to us pursuing the arduous arduous task of every day walking step by step, deciding and making moment by moment decisions to say, Jesus, I'm going to carry this cross. Jesus, I'm going to bear this cross on my back and I'm going to do it to the glory of the Lord. Church, who are we to think that if God gave his only son a cross, that if he wants us to be conformed to the image of his son, that he's going to leave us crossless. The Christian, what awaits you is a cross. For the Christian, what awaits you, what your life will be about, is you bearing a cross. It's an invitation into action. If one idea deals with our perspectives of how we should think about our position with God and his authority in our life, the other is correcting a, per, a perspective of how we believe our life should be lived. This is a call to actual action, to practice. God is saying, I'm inviting you into my ministry. Ministry for, let me clear this up, ministry for Christians is not reserved to pastors or paid professionals. Ministry for Christians is available to every single believer in Jesus Christ. If you are a Christian, God has an assignment for you. It doesn't matter if you're getting paid or not. God has work for you to do. There are no bench players in God's team. God has work for you to do. That's especially something I want to encourage our young believers in this church. Stop waiting on the pastors to prepare or to encourage you or even to to plan out things that God has equipped you and called you to do. You tell us what God has placed on your heart and allow us to come along you and to help you along the way so that you can be all that God has called you to be. The church isn't built off of a few good men who get to do all of the good work while you guys slave away doing grunt work. No, the church is built off of all of God's people working out their gifts, working within the church, looking for ways in which they can serve not only brothers and sisters in the community, but ways in which they can serve their neighborhoods, their schools, their jobs, that co-worker, whatever it is. That is what the church is about. I want to encourage you right now that if you felt feel as though you've been waiting for an opportunity, we want to invite you to say, come, 
Just grab one of us as pastor and say, hey, I want to share some things that are on your heart. We may never make it an organized structure of this church, but I guarantee you we will sit down with you and we will talk through and pray through and hopefully equip you to be able to do all that God has called you to do. That's what we want to be about. Not a few good men making all of decisions, not a few small group of people getting what others may look on and say, oh, that's that's so amazing. I wish I could do that. No, the church is about all of God's family functioning and doing what God has called them to do. Take up your cross. But not only that, for them, as they heard these words, the image of a cross would have crossed their minds. We see those, we see crosses like the chains and the cathedrals and a tattoo on somebody's arm. That's, that's what we see the cross. But for them, they would recall the streets of Jerusalem being lined up with a bunch of crosses. And as, those, as they walked down the streets of Jerusalem, they would look to the left and look to the right, and they would see men and women hanging on a cross, their bodies bloating, the stench of their smell, their bodies decaying, perusing their nose. They would see maggots and flies swarming all around, that the image of the cross meant a call to die. You may be sitting here right now and you're like, Pastor, that's that's too graphic. That's too much. You you forcing it right there. I want to push back on that and I want to say, if that made you uncomfortable, good. I think your problem is that you're too comfortable. I think our problem is that we're way too comfortable and the cross doesn't move us because we don't even fully understand exactly what it meant, exactly what it caused. It was a tool to murder. And torture people. Jesus is calling us to bear that. He's calling us to pick that up. Carry that. I think there's two ways in which this can be applied to our lives. The first being, uh, we live in America. And so for many of us, we're not really aware of the realities that people actually are still dying for their faith across the world. That doesn't necessarily come across our table every single day. Christians, brothers and sisters of Christ being murdered and brutalized for their profession of faith in Jesus. So let me bring that before you play today. Aleppo, Syria, 2015, a group of 12 missionaries were over, indigenous missionaries were overseas and their task was to serve those in Syria. While they were there, ISIS began to penetrate into village after village, so much so that their leader had, in a sense, insisted that they leave Syria in order to spare their lives. This group of Christians, feeling so compelled by the gospel of Jesus Christ, decided, no, we believe that God has called us to stay right here to serve and to witness and to proclaim the goodness of, God, uh, the goodness of Jesus Christ to those who can't flee from this dangerous territory. And so they stayed. A few months later, after staying, the leader who had escaped, his, uh, escaped to freedom, he recalls the last words that he said to this group of people. He insisted that they leave, but they refused to do so. And he says, man, I wish, I wish that I had told them that I had been more forceful for them to leave. He mentions how on August 5th, those 12 missionaries were captured by ISIS 
and in them being captured by ISIS, the Islamic State. He recalls that the word spread that ISIS had asked them, did you renounce Islam for Christianity? To which they said yes. They gave them the choice. If you want to walk free, then leave Christianity behind and we can confirm you or convert you back to Islam. To which they said, I will never renounce Christianity. I will never renounce my Jesus. From that moment on, those 12 missionaries were hung on a cross. Those 12 missionaries that refused to deny Jesus Christ were put on a cross, were left there for two days so that everyone in the village could see. And they told them, you cannot take them down for two days hanging on a cross. To which the sign next to them read, infidels, unbelievers. I'm glad that the story doesn't just stop there. Because as a result of their faithfulness, stories began to get out of these Islamic terrorists becoming converted. There, there was one individual in particular whose name, they say, remains confidential. This one individual recalls of how he was commissioned to enter into a village to go to a Christian gathering and to kill everybody. It was in the moment that as he was prepared to go and kill all of these Christians, he said something, some, something was resisting me. Something was, was, was keeping me from accomplishing his task to which he ended up retreating and going home that night. It was that night that he says he had a dream and in this dream he saw a man named Jesus. In him seeing a man named Jesus, he decides, who is this person named Jesus that restrained me from doing what I wanted to do? To which he goes to the group and he says, I came here last night to kill you, but then I saw Jesus. Can you tell me about this person named Jesus, to which they shared with him the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. And it was in that moment alone that that man went from eternal darkness to God's light. He was saved that day. God is still in the business of converting Saul's into Paul's. God is still in the business of taking the worst of these And making him one of his own. That's what God does. And so many of us, we may never, ever travel to a foreign land where we are um, constantly faced with the threat of danger for our face. That may not be many of our stories. However, I do believe that it has to be some of our stories. When we think of missions abroad. Statistics show that less than 1% of all missionaries overseas are African-Americans. That's less than 300 people in the world. 300. As a church, we want to start praying, and we have been praying right now that God would raise up missionaries of every color, of every background, of every socioeconomic status, for people who would say, I feel is, uh, that people would know that God is leading me to leave behind the comforts that I find here in my own country to go to the outermost parts of the world and declare who he is to those who may never hear him unless I say, Lord, I'm willing to go. But I specifically want to encourage my African-American brothers and sisters. I want to encourage us to embrace the rich history that lies behind the church of what it looks like to give our lives for the glory of God across the seas. 
We want to be a church that sends those out, that sends members of this church out into the outermost parts of the world for the sole purpose of people being able to see that there are people that look like them that believe in Jesus Christ. God is not limited by what he can do based off the color of our skin. However, my own personal testimony is that it wasn't until I saw somebody that looked like me, somebody that I could relate with to where I was even open to the reality that Jesus cared about me. It's important for us to consider that God is calling, maybe not all of us, but he's definitely calling some of us. If you feel that same burden, you feel as though God has been stirring in your heart or desire and you don't know where to begin, please come to one of us and and, and let's talk about that. We're in the process now of looking for opportunities to where we can serve alongside other agencies, other people out in the field with the hopes that we can see um, our church, and not only our church, but other churches in Atlanta and across the country sending missionaries overseas to declare the gospel. But secondly, that's not the only thing I think Jesus is implying with carrying our cross, uh, carrying our cross. Jesus is also saying that for many of us, carrying our cross is just going to be day-to-day decisive decisions that we make to choose him above other things. Carrying our cross is going to look like getting up each morning and praying with the hopes that God would give me an opportunity to share who he is with somebody that I encounter. Waking up each morning and saying, God, search my heart so that you can reveal the areas in my life that don't line up with who you are so that I can be more like your son and give me the strength and ability to resist any and all temptation, but also help me to trust you that you're really producing righteousness in my life. One way that we can do that is by asking some of your close friends, hey, what are the things about my life that you see in me that you know don't line up with God's word? What are the areas that you think I can grow in? And let them speak into your life. Let somebody you trust tell you, hey, brother or sister, I see this area in your life. And and don't wait for them to take the initiative. Most of the times your friends know what's jacked up about you. They're just not never going to tell you about it. (laughs) Invite people, people that you call family into your life to speak into your life and then to walk with you on that journey. Let them hold you accountable. Let them pray for you. Let them bear you, bear your burdens and embrace your pain when you fail horribly. And let them restore you by reminding you of the gospel and how that your performance does not secure or change God's acceptance of you. That Jesus performed perfectly. Take up your cross and follow me. You would think that after such weighty statements that Jesus would stop there. That that would be enough. Man, Jesus, that's a lot. Deny myself, carry my cross. Woo, time to go, right? But he doesn't. He seeks to persuade us of the folly of believing that there's something else out there better than him. To which he says, whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life because of me will save it. For what does it benefit someone if he gains the whole world and yet forfeits himself? Other translations say, lose his soul. 
You may hear right now and feel like, man, following Jesus is too much. He wants too much from me. I can't do that in and of myself. I don't want to give up all of these things just for Jesus. How do we know Jesus is actually who he says he is? And I think Jesus is speaking directly to you. He's going to remind us and seek to persuade us that. Why do you think that following me is so risky and yet you're willing to place your trust in something or someone who, you know, at the end of the day will perish? What will it who for whoever wants to save his life, you can spend all of your life wasting it, wasting it for chasing after jobs and success and material success and all of these things, you could try to preserve this ideal of comfort and security. You can make that your life same. You can do that. But I want you to know you're fighting a losing battle. I'm going to let you know that what lies ahead of you, what lies at the end, that if you make this your pursuit, at the end of the day, you're still going to lose it all. But for the one who decides, no, all of these other things that I have to give up, are worth giving up. All of the things that would compete with my affections um, or, or would seek to convince me that they're worthy storing up right here and right now. I want you to know that if you're willing to give all of those things up for me. That the reward is so much greater. That there is no other rock that we can build our houses on rather than the rock of God's word. Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the son of man will be ashamed of him when he comes in glory and that of the father and the holy angels. If Jesus paints for us a picture of what it looks like to follow him, then right now he's showing us exactly what it means to not be following him. That the person who is ashamed of who Jesus is, who he is revealed as revealed in the Bible, that if we're ashamed of him and what he has to say, then he on the day that we confront him face to face, he will be ashamed of us. Whether you acknowledge it or not, every single one of us will stand before our creator and have to give an account. We will have to. See God bring out the scrolls of every thought, every action, every word, every intention that we had that was completely rebellious towards God. The hope that we have as Christians is that we recognize that we're guilty and therefore we place our trust in the one who took our place and therefore took all of those things that we deserve, experience God's wrath and then therefore allows us. To have his righteousness. That's the Christian. The person who hears these things and feels like, man, I'm not willing to give that up. I just want to continue in doing life the way that I want to do it. Well, you will hear all of those same things brought to the table. This is what you did. This is what you did. This is what you thought in your heart. This is what you said, blah, blah, blah. blah. And in that moment, God will judge you. And he will say, depart from me, for I never knew you. Judgment is coming. Judgment is coming. And to close. Jesus ends not with wanting us to stay in a state of despair, because if we're honest, when we hear these things, 
We know we can't do it in and of our own strength. We know the task is far too heavy for us to ever accomplish without God's help. And so lastly, the point is that following Jesus is the most rewarding thing you will ever do. Following Jesus is the most rewarding thing you will ever do. He concludes with this. Truly, I tell you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. To keep this verse in context. He specifically, scholars believe, is he's referring to Peter, John, and James, who in the immediate text that follow this, we get the, um, what they call the transfiguration, where they get a glimpse of seeing Jesus in his glory. And though this may only be applicable to those particular individuals who would be able to see Jesus in the fullness of his glory for an instant, We look ahead and we look to the promises of God that though he commands great things from us, he also promises great things to us. The promise for us is that though we may experience hardship in this life, though we may have to give up a lot in order to follow Jesus, the reality is that one day, like Peter, John, and James, we will see Jesus for who he really is. We will behold him for the first time. We'll be able to touch his hand. We'll be able to embrace his body. We'll be able to kiss his cheek. And we will spend eternity with him. When our hope is on the horizon, what that does is it allows us to say, like Paul said, that these momentary afflictions are nothing to be compared to the glory that shall be revealed in Christ. Jesus, let us all remember today that the call to take up our cross, the call to deny ourselves is not something um, that we should have a posture of regret or remorse. No, we should be grateful that Jesus would allow us to share in his sufferings so much so that he would allow us in this life to get to know him all that much better. As we close, let me end with God's word to be an encouragement to us And would you read with me in Isaiah 41, 10. And it says, do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be afraid, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will hold on to you with my righteous hand. Be sure that all who are enraged against you will be ashamed and disgraced. Those who contend with you will become as nothing and will perish. You will look for those who contend with you, but you will not find them. Those who war against you will become absolutely nothing. For I am the Lord your God who holds your right hand, who says to you, do not fear. I will help you. Following Jesus is an ongoing commitment, not a one-time decision. It will cost us a whole lot. But though it costs us a lot, in the end, the reward we receive will make everything that we went through worth it. This is what God leaves us with this day. Would you pray with me? Father, we're grateful that even in the midst of hard teaching, God, even in the midst of weighty or um, intimidating commands by you, we're grateful that you have given us your helper. 
that you've given us your spirit, Lord God, that indwells within us, that empowers us to do the things that you've called us to do. We pray that the promises that you give us would anchor us in seasons of difficulty, in seasons of turmoil, Lord. Would we trust your plan for our lives? Would we trust you for who you say you are? Um, Keep us from placing any boxes around you, Lord. Keep us, Lord, from giving you any conditions, Lord. Um, But, Father, we'll be open to fully submit and surrender to your will for our lives. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.